What is population health? Why do some people become sick while others don't? How do we study and what can we do to eliminate health inequities? Sick Individuals, Sick Populations, the new podcast series from the Interdisciplinary Association of Population Health Science, covers these topics and much more. Join us. Arisha Martinez-Cardoso from the University of Chicago. Michael Esposito from the University of Michigan. And I'm Daryl Hudson at Washington University in St. Louis. Twice a month as we discuss cutting-edge population health research with scholars working across disciplinary boundaries. Welcome. In today's episode, we are joined by panel participants from the ongoing IAPHS annual meeting. I'm your host, Gerald Hudson from Washington University in St. Louis. I'm joined by Devin Grayson from the University of Massachusetts, and we'll be talking about manufacturing policies to improve vaccination. Our mandate's the way forward. Devin, welcome. Thanks, Daryl. It's our pleasure to be speaking with you and the IAPHS community. So tell us a little bit about what we're going to be talking about today. Sure. As many are aware, recent outbreaks of vaccine-preventable diseases, such as measles, have heightened concern over suboptimal vaccination rates. Under-vaccination may be due to access barriers, hesitation over the safety and effectiveness of vaccination, or both. A variety of strategies exist to encourage greater vaccine uptake, including increasing access to vaccination services, improving vaccine education among youth and parents, providing incentives such as financial bonuses to parents with up-to-date children, and mandating vaccination, often of school children, without approved exemptions. Child vaccine mandates are ubiquitous in the United States and employed internationally in various ways. Vaccine mandates vary in several key elements, including the target population, what is required by the mandate, what are the consequences for noncompliance, who is in charge of enforcement of the mandate, and um, perhaps most hotly debated, the procedures for exemption from a mandate. In United States, States' efforts to remove religious and philosophical exemptions, for example, have become hotly politicized and subject to backlash, including protests and ballot measure recall efforts. While the legal and ethical dimensions of such policies are often discussed, conclusions regarding the effectiveness of mandates as a strategy, particularly when they're met with public resistance, remains a thorny issue, as context and implementation factors likely play a substantial role in the success of mandate policies. Now, with several COVID-19 vaccine candidates in development, new questions have arisen regarding whether there might be a role for mandates in ensuring optimal uptake of a potential COVID vaccine. Our panel of experts from the U.S. and Canada will present a range of evidence-based perspectives on the question, are mandates the way forward for population vaccine coverage? Thank you so much, Devin. And this really sounds like a wonderful, timely, important panel. So why don't you introduce us to the panelists for today? Sure. Joining me here today are three researchers who use a variety of approaches to study vaccine mandates. Richard Carpiano is professor of public policy and sociology at the University of California, Riverside. A medical sociologist, public and population health scientist by training, his research has focused extensively on social determinants of health and most recently on the social and policy factors that shape vaccination uptake and hesitancy in the U.S., Canada, and Denmark. 
including vaccine science denial activism in the U.S. and its intersections with COVID-19 denialism and related activism. Colina Kaltai is a postdoctoral scholar at the University of Washington's Center for an Informed Public. Her research centers around the information behaviors of people who dissent from the scientific mainstream and how social media and online groups play a role in that decision-making. She's specifically focused her work in the context of vaccine hesitancy and anti-vaccine groups online. Andrea Polonio is Chancellor's Postdoctoral Fellow at the University of California Riverside School of Medicine. A medical sociologist, her current research focuses on understanding the role of policies and interventions for shaping social inequalities and vaccination. And I'm Devin Grayson, Assistant Professor of Health Communication at the University of Massachusetts Amherst on unceded ancestral homelands of the Pocomtuck and Nonotuck peoples. I study what people do with public health information, including that pertaining to vaccination, and how that impacts health and social equity with a focus on Canada and the U.S. So each of our panelists are going to talk a bit about our work related to mandates. Um, and to start with, Rich, can you tell us a bit about your work on vaccine legislation and anti-vaccine activism, lessons for policymakers? Thank you very much for that introduction, and I, I really appreciate it. And it's great to be part of this panel. And uh, um, so, what I'd like to talk about is, you know, it's it's really amazing to think, you know, how how far we've kind of come since um, with COVID and uh, sort of where we were uh, uh, just even a, even a year ago. Um, thinking of in September uh, of last year, uh, with respect to uh, vaccine legislation and and with mandates, uh, we sort um, uh, for example, uh, just over the even just prior to COVID, we saw uh, some uh, some bills being discussed within state houses, within New Jersey, within Connecticut. Uh, Maine had a referendum, and before that, even uh, there was uh, California's uh, SB 276, which essentially was uh, a bill to patch up a, uh, an earlier uh, some holes in an earlier mandate. Um, and so, um, this is not. Generally, sort of an area that prior to my career, the early parts of my career, that I, I was, I, I really sort of studied in depth from this, from a sort of a standpoint of just what's good, what gets covered in the media, looking at sort of uh, the anti-vaccine movement as a, uh, as a, as a, from a social movement sort of perspective. Um, but um, over time, and particularly as I as I got more into uh, into studying vaccination hesitancy and thing and and the politics uh, behind it, um, you know, observing what I've what I've noticed through my work and and what I'd like to talk about in the time that I have today is really about the role of tactics and tactics used by uh, the anti-vaccine uh, movement. Um, and again, I want to stress right from the get-go that when I when I say anti-vaccine sort of movement or anti-vaccine activism, I'm talking here about um, you know a much more uh, extreme group of people on the spectrum of hesitancy, uh, people for whom uh, vaccine science denialism uh, and and even just the issues of vaccines more broadly really um, get at a, a, a some some core ideological types of beliefs and are the things that drive uh, these individuals to show up to protests and rallies and to be, and, and this basically to be a, a bread and butter issue for them. Uh, like it might, like any, an issue might be for another type of concerned citizen, whether it be uh, um, policing reform or um, 
or healthcare coverage or, or, or that nature. And so in the time that I have today, what I'd like to talk about here is how studying the tactics um, that the anti-vaccine movement has, has used, particularly in recent years, is I think very informative, not just from an academic sort of standpoint, but from a very practical standpoint of planning from uh, when we think about um, uh, so much vaccine uh, legislation is being is, gets considered um, to be undertaken by elected officials, and yet um, I, it seems that there's often not, uh, I should say, sufficient sort of thinking or planning of what will result when legislation is being planned for introduction uh, to a, to an elected body within a, within a state house in terms of the uh, the types of uh, of response that one would get from the anti-vaccine uh, movement, and so. Um, well, the first thing, you know, foremost thing is, of course, crowd swarm. And so we get the impression of, 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 a, of a sizable majority uh, that, ex that exists uh, when that's not the case, when polls really sort of show that this sort of extreme version of anti-vaccine activism is really much more of a, of an, a minority viewpoint. But a, ver a very key thing here, and what we're seeing now, particularly as the anti-vaccine movement is moving more into the um, Moving more into the COVID uh, uh, denialism uh, sort of realm, and with the sort of in, in moving into that sphere, is the issue about around moving away from sort of science or trying to push their scientific views based on often you know bogus or, or or really poorly done science as a way to counter scientific expertise, and instead push uh, on on the standpoint of values. Uh, which in this way makes it much more of a, of, a, of a difficult field to sort of challenge in the sense of uh, there's a lots of beliefs around bodily autonomy and, uh, and from a very libertarian standpoint about government overreach. And those things are a lot harder to sort of pin down and sort of argue uh, from, uh, from a standpoint uh, 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 either pro or for uh, a particular sort of uh, policy initiative than it would be to argue, say, sort of that, for example, MMR uh, shots cause autism, things of that nature. And, and with that, also, we see the media coverage that tends to cover these then from a political standpoint and not from a scientific one. And so, which lends itself to a more sort of both sideism sort of perspective of where elected officials with a particular sort of viewpoint pushing legislation um, are placed alongside activists who have their own sort of position, uh, which whereas before we might've seen it more from the standpoint of activists versus clinicians or versus scientists. And so it becomes this much more of a, uh, of a, of a relativist sort of uh, um, uh, discourse. Uh, which makes it much more of sort of sort of a challenging issue that comes with that, and uh, so as we see, also this has been uh, moves it moves itself into the um, has moved itself in, into the COVID sphere as well as as the anti-vaccine movement has uh, now uh, you know sort of found a new cause to take up and uh, and new uh, sorts of allies to align themselves with, many of whom are not science oriented but are much more motivated from the standpoint of government overreach and freedom and more of these kind of libertarian type type values so uh you know look being cognizant of time here i better stop uh, at that point but uh, thank you thanks rich um now kalina can you help us understand the online fight against mandates of course and uh can i just say similar to rich that so much has changed in the world since <laughs> we were first originally talking about this paper and this concept um so a lot of what I focus on is studying uh, anti-vaccine groups, uh, in particular on Facebook, but some of this work could be applicable to other social media platforms and other like groups. 
And initially, uh, the way that I was looking about this work was uh, back a year ago. So thinking <laughs> similar time for right to right uh, in September and thinking about what the platforms looked like at, at that point. Uh, so with the anti-vaccination groups, these are groups that are typically uh, can range anywhere from a very small group. You think about 50 people on Facebook to some of the largest 200,000, like stop mandatory vaccination. Uh, so you have a wide range of groups that range also from being very U.S. specific to big international groups to very like small locale, like an Ohio specific group. And what's interesting is that across these groups is uh, you have people who are really hardened, you know, well-formed beliefs um, against uh, vaccines, that they are not safe, that they're not benevolent to people who are questioning. So these groups are also a non-monolithic group, but things that, but there are things that we can see across all these groups. Um, so more, no tool has been more <laughs> useful to the community than social media and social networks and as a tool to organize against fighting mandates. Uh, mandates and policies are a big topic of conversation uh, with local groups to anything as big internationally. And the reason why is that it's so easy to be able to organize and connect with other people. So these online platforms function as a tool to meet people you don't know in your network who hold similar views, similar values to you, who are also concerned about the same topic, like policy mandates. And then people get to meet physically in person, create their network, and then you can actually even take these conversations online to platforms that are less moderated. So imagine a giant like WhatsApp group, text message, listserv, other ways, because in addition to like policy mandates, people in this community are also worried about social media censorship and moderation. So you can imagine platforms for anything from like Twitter to Facebook, even Pinterest, uh, all have different policies on what it's uh, okay to not okay to post. Um, and vaccine information kind of like skirts the line depending on the platform. So it's a really interesting conversation to happen to talk about policy moderation because I think coupled with that is uh, Facebook and social media moderation. Uh, and it's something we can't ignore considering how useful of a tool it is for people to organize. And now I'm not saying that tools shouldn't be available, um, but it's, it's something we definitely can't ignore considering it's also used as a tool to share um, vaccine misinformation um, and ways for people to uh impassion themselves towards this particular policy uh, mandates and even ones that are, um, and, and particularly in the world of COVID, we saw now this intersection with other communities. So um, way back in March and in April at these anti-lockdown protests, you actually started seeing anti-vaccine protesters out there. It's because social media platforms um, let these groups uh, meet, co-mingle, organize, and have an intersection. Um, and yeah, I'll, uh, I'll end it at that because otherwise I'll just keep talking. <laughs> Thank you, Kalina. Um, turning to Andrea, what can you tell us about mandates specifically looking at HPV vaccination policy? Thanks for the introduction, Devin. Um, so my current and previous research has really focused on um, human papillomavirus or HPV vaccination. For my most recent project, um, which I'm actually currently working on in collaboration with our co-presenter, Richard Carpiano, um, I'm aiming to track proposed and enacted state legislation related to HPV vaccination to better understand the conditions under which pro-HPV vaccination bills have been signed into law. And so to date, state legislative efforts promoting HPV vaccines have taken a wide array of forms. This includes bills that aim to encourage HPV vaccination by increasing knowledge about HPV vaccines through public awareness campaigns, and formal education provided by schools or public health departments. It includes bills that attempt to extend access to vaccines by allowing minors to consent to vaccination, 
enabling a greater array of health professionals, such as pharmacists, to administer vaccines, or requiring insurers to cover the costs associated with vaccination. And perhaps most stringent, this also includes bills requiring HPV vaccine for school attendance. Such school entry mandates have been enacted in DC, Virginia, Rhode Island, and Hawaii to date. So previously, I looked specifically at the impact of these school entry HPV vaccine mandates on overall vaccination rates and disparities in vaccination across racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic groups. A key finding from my work in this area is that states that enacted the first school entry mandates saw health providers more equally recommend HPV vaccines to teens across socioeconomic and racial ethnic groups. At the same time, these mandates were accompanied by a decline in teens' overall completion of the HPV vaccine series and did little to facilitate equal uptake across racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic groups. This was largely because mandates had broad opt-out clauses, lacked a coordinated means of tracking or following up with teens that were due for their shots, and did not have the support of many parents who questioned the necessity of vaccination against a disease that spread through sexual contact and thus not easily transmiss transmissible in schools. A final related area that I have examined and I believe is relevant for today's discussion about a possible COVID-19 vaccine is how social position relates to willingness to vaccinate against HPV to help protect oneself as well as others in one's community. The key finding from my published and forthcoming work in this area is that despite lagging in initial uptake, marginalized populations tend to be more community-minded when it comes to vaccination and more willing to be vaccinated to help protect others in the community. And I'll leave it at that. Thanks, Andrea. This is so interesting. Um, and I'll add that my own work has included qualitative interviews with vaccine hesitant parents, some of whom, and even those with relatively mild hesitancy, are very reactive to the idea of government mandates for vaccination for children, um, as well as surveys of Canadian populations to better understand vaccine hesitancy, including the acceptability of new school vaccine mandates uh, as compared with other vaccine promotion interventions and a systematic review of the impact of school vaccine mandates on whole pediatric population vaccine coverage, um, in which we found that surprisingly little evidence existed to support the common assumption that mandates cause greater vaccine acceptance. Although in settings with privatized insurance systems in particular, a mandate may force insurer coverage of required vaccines. In some cases, uh, such as what Andrea just highlighted, where a given vaccine is controversial and has high hesitancy, such as some of the early HPV vaccine mandates in the United States uh, mandates were um, seen to backfire and be associated with lower vaccination than in similar regions that didn't have mandates. So similar to other scientists who reviewed the evidence on mandates, I encourage the approach of mandating with caution, which is to say first trying other interventions with a lower risk of backlash and then attending to context with any new mandates because it's really hard to remove a mandate once it's in place without communicating a lack of importance for vaccination. So as our panelists have acknowledged, a lot has changed in the population health world since we initially proposed this panel. So we'd like to turn our attention for the rest of this podcast 
to questions regarding what we can learn from existing evidence about vaccine mandates that could be applicable to a potential COVID-19 vaccine program. So we're going to ask the panelists to consider what is different about a potential COVID vaccine program and what is similar to what we've seen with other vaccine programs and particularly those that have had mandates applied to them and what recommendations you would issue regarding mandates. So first, I'm going to ask uh, Kalina, why don't you lead us off here and, and maybe you can speak to what online reaction and organizing are we seeing already even before any COVID vaccines are on the market? Yeah, that is a great question. And that is like the million dollar question, right? Um, it's so interesting to look at the, COVID, the future COVID-19 vaccine because it is a future vaccine. And so many people are talking about it, uh, including people online are talking about it. Um, before we're talking about like vaccines pre-COVID times, you'd really focus on people who are really passionate normally about childhood vaccines. And now the conversation is uh, that like, who's going to be required to take a COVID-19 vaccine, um, like, will you need to take it to go to work? There's all these different questions, particularly because adults need to take it and not just children. So we're seeing a widespread online reaction, um, not just in the U.S., but worldwide, about uh, uh, potential like fears and concerns uh, related to it. Um, in addition to these conversations, there's uh, worries about politics involved. There are uh, worries about who is manufacturing the vaccine, how fast the vaccine is being uh, created, uh, which really kind of goes back to a lot of the classic fears and concerns that um, anti-vaxxers tend to have, but now we're seeing it on a widespread um, level. Uh, you know, everyone's parents, everyone's sisters, uh, your doctors are talking about it, right? Um, and so as far as like organizing we're seeing about this and concerns about mandates, We've been we've been seeing this since uh, COVID started really becoming an issue, right? We've uh, at the protests where they're talking about just lockdowns and shutdowns and shelter in place. Vaccines are already part of that conversation, even though vaccine was nowhere near the market because uh, people were afraid of vaccine being mandated. Um, and I think this fear has really caught on on a widespread level, and it, from anything from a fear to like a mild concern. And I think what's happening is that we're having people. Uh, who would otherwise be considered pro-vaccine, people who support vaccines and think they're safe, who are like, mm, maybe I'm going to wait till other people get it. Or, oh, I'm not sure if I really want it to be mandated. I still want the option. Or, you know, I don't think it's the right thing for me. Maybe someone else needs to take it. And these are all like sort of baby vaccine hesitancy thoughts that we see uh, popping up, right? Uh, what's the, the crazy part about this, or I don't want to say crazy part, the, the interesting part is the way that like, social media platforms on, um, and social networking platforms have really aided into this conversation. You know, the talk about vaccines and mandates, which ends up bleeding into mask conversations, um, really highlights the virality and the concern that people have about this, that it, it is not a quiet, small topic. And so when we see, uh, talking about vaccines, we can't ignore its intersection with all these other topics that are being organized, um, particularly around COVID. Uh, so the, the, I think the really important thing here is when we're talking about mandates is, um, and, and Rich and Andrea can probably back me up on this as well, is that, you know, 
the first step we often try to think about, which is very much using a hammer, like let's just require it for all. Like, so for example, in California, they removed any sort of exemptions um, except for uh, a medical exemption to childhood vaccine. And I think that is a very aggressive move. So if you were to try to do something like that uh, here, it, it's not going to be the most effective way. Um, and you can see that being mirrored also with online platforms. If the pr platform says, you know, we absolutely have no conversation about um vaccines, then it's using a hammer to fix a problem that probably doesn't need a hammer. Um, and it's also maybe not the most effective way to encourage people to vaccinate. If that is the ultimate goal, to encourage um, a wide spectrum of people to vaccinate, and whether that be a childhood vaccine or a potential COVID-19 vaccine, we need to have that complicated conversation um, and balance uh, you know, personal freedoms, rights, sort of, <laughs> and government um, overreach, and this really tenuous situation between uh, protecting community versus protecting a person's individual rights. Uh, and I think the internet is <laughs> been maybe not the best venue for it, but it is the main venue for it. Um, and I think there's going to be a lot more people who are concerned about a vaccine mandate than there have been in previous years. Thanks, Kalina. And Rich, um, how does this fit into the evolution of anti-vaccine activism and the values of leading anti-vaccine activists? Well, yeah, this is sort of the uh, the the, yeah, the latest evolution. Uh, you know, there was the, there was lots of. I remember. Uh, I recall there was much uh, sort of discussion online at the uh, sort of the onset of uh, when we were starting to go into shelter in place that, you know, maybe that this was going to be the, the situation where uh, we we're going to finally sort of eradicate the, uh, the anti-vaccine movement and the beliefs of that because everybody was going to see how important uh, vaccines are for, for, uh, for a pandemic, uh, you know, and that, that certainly did happen we, we we just see them now moving into into new new places and new sorts of spaces uh and and covid providing that sort of prime prime opportunity um and one could say also that's a bit of, of opportunism too in the sense that there is um uh you know and thinking about california uh you know so uh, the anti-vaccine activism movements lost some major legislative fights and so the question starts to become you know sort of really what what was sort of what sort of left for them in terms of um, an identity and sort of sort of a purpose and and, and so in a way lots of uh, the covid response uh and 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 then just the simple fact that public health is a government thing uh naturally uh, you know provides sort of a a natural kind of new en enemy in a sense to be to be sort of opposed to and 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 uh and to be pulling out, you know, lots of lots of very similar sorts sorts of tactics, um, but also, you know, kind of building uh, too on, on what was just said you know, is this idea that you know um, the sort of the public consciousness around a a vaccine that doesn't even exist is really quite fascinating in the sense that everybody thinks about this is no safety or track record. It's just completely a hypothetical. And so how, how that might capture the imagination, how it might be framed in terms of politicization, which in a sense is divided and conquered, I think, people in terms of you know, even people who are, you know, very much believe in science and the value of vaccines, uh, as well as uh, the more uh, um, heavily anti-vaccine anti, uh, you know, hesitant. Um, 
in terms of having sort of very similar views or, or, or trepidation about, about such a vaccine is really um, quite concerning uh, from a more, I guess, objective sort of removed standpoint of it. It's, it's, it's sort of fascinating to see, to see that, that emerge um, from, a, from a practical standpoint. It's, it's really quite concerning. And I, I, ironically, you know, when it, we talk about what, one final point I would just want to make is the, the idea that um, in, in thinking about where this all comes out with mandates and where that might go with vaccines, um, it's interesting to think that, well, I mean, uh, one, it sh- I, I believe very strongly that it should, that should be a, a last resort, uh, if anything. But um, it might even get to the point of where we're seeing, uh, where pressures are such, you know, let, let's say within six months or something, you know, we can only hope that there's a, you know, an, effect, an effective vaccine and that's safe and that's approved. Um, some people will get it, others won't. And uh, but at the same time, there's going to be, in essence, sorts of normative pressures for people to get it in terms of being able to return to work. Uh, you know, maybe uh, even some pressures that people might be experiencing within their workplace from their employers and things of that nature. And so we might be starting to see more of a um, a mandate by default, I guess you could kind of say, in terms of, of way, the way normative pressures kind of work to get people to vaccinate. So there, there could be the possibilities uh the possibilities for that. The other flip side of this too is when, I, when we're talking about free marketing markets is really what's fascinating is the role of, as, as we're seeing now with drug companies trying to have an agreement about uh, when to put in their data for approval uh, as a way to build trust, which is ironically what you would expect sort of government to do. But in a sense, this is being done as a response to insufficient government action to build trust. Uh, and so there's this uh, weird sort of inversion of what we're seeing with uh, with the COVID uh, vaccine that, that we that we that we wouldn't see with uh, with with existing vaccines that already have uh, you know sort of a track record and have been around for a while too. Thank you, Rich. Now, Andrea, what do we need to keep in mind when it comes to equity issues with a potential COVID nineteen vaccination program? So I think, first of all, uh, we need to acknowledge that there's some key differences that come into account when comparing HPV and COVID-19 vaccination strategies. So for one, the target demographic of um, vaccination varies, right? So HPV legislation, programming, and mandates really focus on targeting adolescents and to a lesser extent, the young adult population. A successful COVID-19 vaccine program is going to need to target individuals in all age groups from childhood through older adulthood, and will need to have mechanisms in place for tracking uptake. In addition, I think that uh, differences in the mode of disease transmission will likely translate into differences in willingness to comply with mandates if they are implemented. So in contrast to sexually transmitted HPV, with COVID-19, we're talking about a highly contagious disease is primarily spread through respiratory droplets. In this way, it might be easier to highlight the threat posed by the virus and the necessity of vaccination to prevent its spread in order to make the case for mandating the vaccine um, and encouraging uptake. But despite these differences, there's also several similarities uh, between COVID-19 and HPV. So in the United States, low-income Black and Hispanic individuals have disproportionately high rates of HPV-related cancer morbidity and mortality, and we see similar disparities with COVID-19. It's important to keep the disparities in mind as we move toward an eventual COVID-19 vaccine think about how the vaccine will be distributed across the population, and consider the impact of the distribution strategy on inequalities in uptake, 
When HPV vaccines first entered the market, we saw disparities in vaccination such that the same Black, Hispanic, and low-income populations that were disproportionately likely to contract or die from HPV-related cancer were also less likely to receive a provider recommendation to be vaccinated or get HPV shots. We might expect to see similar inequalities emerge with an eventual COVID-19 vaccine, due to differences in provider communication patterns and persistent barriers to access. So in terms of equity, I think there's really three key areas that we need to keep in mind. First, we need to ensure that those people most affected by COVID-19 are represented in vaccine trials so that the vaccine is proven effective for a diversity of people. Racial ethnic minority and particularly Black populations have historically been underrepresented in clinical trials, largely due to a history of racism and discrimination in medicine, which has led to patient distrust. Appealing to a sense of helping the community is a possible strategy that might resonate with some marginalized racial ethnic groups and encourage participation in vaccine trials. Second, once a vaccine is available, we need to make sure that it's accessible to all, including the Black, Hispanic, and low-income populations that account for a disproportionate number of COVID-19 cases and deaths. We will need to ensure health providers issue routine recommendations to all patients, regardless of income or race, and mandates could be helpful in this regard. But to facilitate equal access, we will also need to make sure the vaccine is easily accessible within lower-income and racial ethnic minority communities, and available at no cost to those who are un- or underinsured. If this is a vaccine that requires more than one shot for optimal e- efficacy, we will also need to implement mechanisms to follow up with patients for repeat vaccinations to ensure individuals don't fall through the cracks after receiving their first shot. As we'll likely ish- face issues of supply and demand, we also need to prioritize administration of HPV vaccines to the most vulnerable groups, which includes low-income Black and Hispanic Uh, populations most likely to develop and die of COVID-19. So third, I think we also need to keep in mind possible unintended consequences of the rollout of a vaccination program. A strict approach like school or workplace mandates could be met with public resistance that undermines their intended impact and prevents us from attaining widespread and equitable COVID-19 uptake. Acceptability of mandates should be assessed Um, But alternatives to mandates, such as increased education and incentives for vaccination, should be considered. And Devin, I believe you'll be discussing these further. Yes. Thanks, Andrea. Those are some really important points. Um, You've all touched on some key issues here, from the online convergence of COVID denial with anti-vaccine communities to disparities in health impacts aligning with the disparities we see in vaccine access. It seems clear that some elements of our evidence on children's and school mandates will apply to the case of a potential COVID vaccine, and some won't. There are steps short of mandates that could be employed as well, however, um, including public engagement in prioritization exercises, especially if initial supply is anticipated to be low, um, not able to meet the demand, um, engaging members of the public in exercises to prioritize who gets the vaccine first when there's a limited supply. Also, community advisory or public health boards that include representatives specifically invited from hesitant or resistant communities who are underrepresented in the health system, may not have trust in the health system or in the government, can really help with acceptance of the vaccine into potentially resistant communities. Similarly, as Andrea was just getting to partnering with leaders of undervaccinated communities to 
both spread the word about a vaccine, share the evidence on safety and effectiveness, and potentially to act as role models for getting vaccinated themselves in communities. Um, there may be a role in some areas for incentive programs, such as coupons for getting a vaccine, that are intended to encourage those who are on the fence, um, among others. Right now, I don't see a lot of value myself in floating the idea of mandates uh, for a hypothetical vaccine that may or may not be available in the near future. And for an initial population that's different from that targeted by current government mandates. Um, if I had my druthers, we'd be focusing first on these other um, engagement activities and public health promotion activities that will be helpful in increasing health equity, whether or not there's eventually a COVID vaccine. All right, thank you. Um, thank you, Andrea and uh, Devin and Kalina and Richard. And before you all go, I just have there's so many there's so many rich pieces of, of nuggets that you all offered up. So I just had a, a couple of follow up questions. And one of the biggest things that I hear a lot, and I'm sure Kalina sees this a lot on online platforms like Facebook, is just a lot of misinformation. And so I was wondering if anyone, this question can go out to anyone, would you be willing to to kind of debunk some of the myths that are out there? Like people say, well, I won't take the, I'm sure Kalina has seen this, I won't take the vaccine, but I want my children to take it. Or this is all a hoax um, or notions around herd immunity. So again, this question can go to anyone. One, you've seen these myths. And how do you think from a population health perspective, how can we more effectively sort of get in front of, of some of these myths? And, and, and is it too late to even think about doing that? I mean, I'll, I'll guess I'll take that question. <laughs> um, I, I don't definitely don't think it's too late. Um, and so combating misinformation or trying to correct misinformation is no easy task. And it's definitely not something I can answer within like a, you know, 30 or 60 seconds. Um, but I think one of the really important things is sort of the same sort of tricks we tell people in sort of any misinformation that they see online is for to t take a pause. So don't immediately share something you see um, and think about like, you know, take that, uh, do a slow thinking that's like, does this make sense? Um Am I getting like really riled up about a particular thing? So, you know, we often talk about this with like, you know, a um, misleading news story, which we only read the headline and we like send that out. We're like, oh my gosh, they're like going to force mandates on everyone or vaccines are making all sick. Um, and so there are a lot of things we can do to help curtail uh, the spread of misinformation. And I think that there's some personal responsibility on that and some responsibility on the platforms themselves because people use it as a tool. Um, I think it's really important to facilitate conversations with people. So if you encounter someone who might be, you know, slightly misinformed or um, have a, a different misconception about a topic with you, you know, take the time in a non sort of aggressive attacking way to like, hey, let's talk about this. So um, a great example is this <laughs> is, uh, okay, so there's ways that things can be misconstrued. So people like to say like, vaccines have aborted you know, fetal cells in them. And they're, and so the thought of this, like, oh my gosh, they're killing all these babies or having abortions just to make vaccines. And you're like, okay, well, well, let's take the moment and let's actually talk about this. Let's go look at some sources and let's like agree on what sources are trustworthy and not trustworthy. And then you really go back and you're like, oh, okay. In the sixties, there were a couple, um, aborted fetuses that were used to grow like a cell culture, but that doesn't mean that like 
they're using Planned Parenthood as like a farm to <laughs> create vaccines. And they are like, okay. And so you kind of could do a little bit also debunking together. Um, and that's a very time intensive process. But, uh, you know, relying on your personal networks, I think could be one way to do that. But that's just one of like many different tactics. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much, Felina. And I think that that's a really important and, and hard strategy to enact. I mean, even in my own network, it's difficult sometimes to debunk some of the the myths. So people are proud that I'm in public health, but sometimes they don't trust me. So this kind of leveling of the playing field between, like Richard mentioned, this uh, the experts being on the same playing field as people who are activists and have these values related, um, you know, opinions. Richard, you want to hop in? Yeah, thank you. Um, the other thing I, I want to add to this too is, you know, and and, and I think this kind of gets back to uh, public health 101. Also, um, you know, there's the you know, these these interpersonal types of interventions that, you know, that are you know very, very time intensive and, and, and can be very tricky and, and uh, very situation specific too, and, um, and, you know, and we see a big emphasis on that, uh, particularly within uh, within medical care, uh, or, or at least a big emphasis where interventions are something that like just uh, doctors will do at the clinic or the healthcare provider will do it and what, and what exactly can be done. But I, I think we also need to be thinking about this from, uh, you know, what, what are what are the types of structural interventions that we could be undertaking to, to be dealing with uh, with misinformation that, that's out there as well? Um, so you know, I mean, this is going to require some very coordinated, you know, at a policy level, at a you know, just more of an organ, I guess, more of an organizational or, or or market kind of approach. You know, really about partnering with social media companies. Um, you know, for for as much as there's sort of this end what's the word I'm looking for, sort of sort of uh, uh, the end user, I guess you could say, of this, say, say, parent who's got some misconceptions about a vaccine for their child or things like that. There's also a lot of opportunity for sort of grift and um, opportunism functionally. I mean, uh, what we're seeing with with the anti-vaccine movement. And so um, think deplatforming. Um, it's not a great, not you know, it's not a cure-all for things. Um, you know, there's, there, mm-hmm. there, very uh, uh, creative in, in ways of getting around that. But, um, you know, thinking about um, how certain individuals really become sort of like leaders of the movement or being you know, identified. And it gets tricky because obviously they can throw out anything and, you know, we have to stick to science and evidence and, and, and whatnot. But but I think in that way, you know, thinking of these kind of coordinated ways that we can, you know, where health, health communication can really move into 2020, you know, and really think about, you know, playing more, much more of this kind of online by the rules of, uh, you know, by the rules of, of the wild west of social, of social media and the internet. And, uh, you know, it does require some different types of, of tactics than might, what might have been used in the past, like those very boring, dry COVID right. ads that we've seen the CDC use <laughs> for the past yeah. few months, for example, um, and more, more creative kinds of approaches. Yeah, yeah, thanks. And I think that's absolutely um, spot on in terms of uh, bringing about not just structural um, interventions to think about, um, especially in terms of equity, making sure that when the vaccine is – when there is a safe and effective vaccine that's available that is equitably distributed and also thinking about bringing our kind of health communication arsenal into the 20th century. And Devin, I know you're a health communication expert. Any, any words of wisdom that we can be thinking about in terms of what can we be doing to, to better promote, um, you know, vaccine awareness and things like that? 
Yeah, thanks, Daryl. I mean, I think, you know, I appreciate that Colina was speaking largely to the interpersonal communication and Richard was speaking largely to the population level, structural, um, because we really need both of those. And on a population level, yeah, um, health promotion, um, you know, needs to be well-resourced and, and really tethered to communities, particularly communities that have not historically been engaged with mainstream health promotion efforts. It's It's so important. And you know, in health promotion, we really need to up our media game to match the media savvy of some of the um, folks who are promoting anti-science or anti-vaccine or sort of counter narratives that um, make them a lot of money in some cases and have very high production values. And we can't fight that with like old, you know, mimeographed handouts. We need to have very good, high quality media that looks professional to today's eyes and engages particularly young audiences today who are so oriented towards multimedia. Um, on the interpersonal level, I think it's also important to disambiguate between disinformation and misinformation, right? Disinformation being purposely false things that are shared with a reason. Like, I'm going to tell you about this, you know, supposed alternative to a vaccine because you're going to pay me money for it. That's disinformation. Like, I know I'm just trying to make money off of you. And that is not usually worth engaging in. Those people, you know, you're not going to convince someone who's got an agenda for sharing false information and knows it's not true. But misinformation is what people more encounter, just folks sharing, you know, Uncle Ed sharing something on Facebook that he saw somewhere that's not actually accurate. And we do, as you know, I'm going to echo some of what Colina said, we've got some good science that shows that sometimes it feels like it's not worth the effort to engage, but Actually, it usually is, especially if you have a relationship with that person or if there's an audience that could be convinced by watching you engage. And, and there are really three key things that we recommend when you're engaging someone who's sharing misinformation. And one is not to repeat the falsehood um, because repetition works. You know, that's why certain soda brands are so dominant. We've all been advertised them yeah. forever. Like it really advertising works. Um, so don't inadvertently advertise um, false information. Um, second, to build on the common ground you have with someone who's sharing misinformation. So like, oh, I know you really care about this. I really care about this too. That's why I looked into it. And here's what I found, which leads to the third thing, which is referring them to an authoritative source. So Sometimes you can have an agreed upon authoritative source and then perhaps other people on, you know, Aunt Susie's Facebook page will also see your reference to the World Health Organization or someone that is generally agreed upon as an authoritative source. Sometimes you don't agree upon an authoritative source with someone, even if you have a shared relationship. And so you can often though find sources that they would respect um, and share information from that source that supports the scientific accuracy that they are not gleaning in this conversation. So really not repeating the falsehood, building on whatever common ground, using whatever common language you have with that source, and then referring them to some authoritative information. So it's not just an argument. Right. You've got a larger thing to go back on. So I think, yeah, both of those, the structural high quality promotion um, partnered with communities being culturally appropriate, and then you know, encouraging people to actually actively correct misinformation and disregard disinformation in their individual interactions. 
Right. Well, thank you so much, Devin. That's that's really important. And and I learned a lot there. I was jotting down these notes so I can take this to Facebook in my own network and try to bat down some of this uh, misinformation and the important distinction, disinformation. Um, so it seems like nothing new is under the sun in terms of like, we've got these old uh, snake oil salesmen from, from yesteryear. And, and maybe this is a question that Andrea can, can help us out with in, in terms of thinking about Right now, it seems like there has been for at least the last few years that I've paid attention to, um, and you all would know better than me, in terms of these kind of attacks on science. Um, and so there's this sort of a sustained effort to um, either question scientists, to question expertise, like Rich mentioned earlier, the placement of people who are pushing opinions or perhaps um, disinformation on the same sort of playing field, if you will, as someone who's an expert who's dedicated their career to this. So what, what lessons have you picked up in terms of a historical analysis and thinking about how different um, vaccines have worked um, and different movements have worked, um, say for HPV or, or beyond? Anything that you can glean from the, uh, a look historically at some of these other um, movements and, and vaccines? Thank you. Um, so I am not a scholar of vaccine movements, um, to be quite honest, but I think that um, what we have learned with, um, you know, despite pushback against science um, and despite sort of anti-vaccine activism, we've seen with HPV vaccines, at least, that, um, you know, despite despite all that is going on, provider recommendations are still the number one strongest determinant of whether somebody gets vaccinated. Um, so getting, you know, getting um, an individual um, into the doctor's office is an important uh, first step. And this is a prime opportunity where providers can share their expertise um, and sort of make an impact on whether or not individuals are likely to comply with uptake. And we see from the research, it's not just um, receiving an, a vaccine, sorry, receiving a uh, recommendation, but it's also the strength of the recommendation that matters. So going into an office and saying, and having a physician say, um, you know, we have this new vaccine for COVID, might you like to take it today? Um, is is not as strong as when a patient enters an office and the um, provider says, we have this um, vaccination for COVID that you're due for today. We're going to give it to you today. Do you have any questions? Right. Um, another key sort of determinant as um, to whether these uh, recommendations from doctors matters is whether um, patients tr have trust in their physicians and their knowledge. Um, and so I think especially um, with racial ethnic minority populations that historically have had mistrust um, in providers, it's really important um, to work on cultivating um, that trust, right? And um, sort of um, trying to build cu cultural competency um, into practices um, so, that so that patients can have greater trust in their providers um, when those vaccine recommendations come down the line. Absolutely. You know, I think that was a, a great point to, to remember in terms of the connection to, especially primary care physicians. So I remember my grandmother was born and raised in Mississippi in, in a not so great period of our, our country's history. And she trusted her doctor though. So she lived to be 98 years old. And a big part of that was she was extremely adherent to um, the, not just the, the things that 
the physicians hold her, but this trust and this rapport that was built over a lot of years. Um, and so I think that 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 recommendation from physicians, especially for historically underrepresented and marginalized people will be really critical um, in terms of the uptake of the vaccine and, and this population has also been disproportionately affected by the pandemic in a lot of different ways. Um, so I think that's a good place to, to wrap up. And again, I really want to thank you all. Big thanks to Andrea, uh, Kalina, Rich, and of course, Devin for helping to, to pull this together today. And we hope that you tune in for more conversations of how experts from different methodological and disciplinary traditions work with one another across boundaries to understand and improve population health in upcoming episodes of Sick Individuals, Sick Populations. And be sure to check out more work of other scholars participating in IAPHS's 2020 annual meeting. Visit our website, iaphs.org, for recordings of our conference. Thanks again.